I'm grateful to Will for inviting me. I hope Josh gets well quickly and can be back here helping them. I'm especially grateful that uh, I was able to preach on the first Sunday that the youth choir sang. Uh, one of my grandchildren is in there, and uh, I heard his voice distinctly. <laughs> I was in a youth choir when I was his age. Uh, less than really admirable reasons, I went because there was a girl there I liked. <laughs> Judy Fralick, I remember her name even now. The reading is from uh, the book of Job. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up your loins like a man. I will question you, and you shall declare to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the heavenly beings shouted for joy? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds so that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightning? so that they may go and say to you, Here we are. Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who has the wisdom to number the clouds or who can tilt the waterskins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass and the clods cling together? Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God and wander about for lack of food? So the word of the Lord. The country musician Michael Peterson sings, You know you're in trouble when the bartender cries. Which brings us to Job. It is odd, don't you think, that we don't hear more about Job in the church? He is, I think, one of the most compelling Characters in all of Scripture. He lives on my street, you know. He's in your neighborhood. He's probably sitting in a pew in this sanctuary. Bill Hazelwood told me that recently they were in New York City, in one of those fancy churches in New York City for even song. And the preacher was to preach from one of these late chapters of Job. And after three minutes, he sat down and asked the choir to sing. What a shame. It is the unjustified suffering that makes him so compelling. 
You can read in the Bible about Moses parting the sea. You can read about Samson having his hair shaved. And never think once about your own life. But a devout woman bears twin boys who are soon diagnosed with cystic fibrosis. Her marriage crumbles under the strain. Then she comes down with MS just short of her 40th birthday. True story. Or an innocent three-year-old Syrian refugee is shown on TV, washed up on some beach, face down in the sand, dead. And I can barely watch. True stories like these make Job real and contemporary in a way like few other figures in the Bible can. It's on our behalf that God looks, Job looks at God and shakes his fist and says, why are you allowing this to happen to me? If you want to kill me off, why don't you just do it quick? I know stories, and some of you have stories that would make even a bartender cry. Job is the man who did everything right, blameless and upright, says the good book. He feared God. He turned away from evil. He had a loving wife, ten children, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 pairs of oxen, 500 donkeys, and servants that would put Donald Trump to shame. And his misfortune came through no trouble of his own. He was quietly just minding his business down on earth, praying for his children, taking care of all those animals, leading a faithful life. Well, how did all this happen? Well, the story goes, one day God was sitting around in the heavenly places with his cabinet, And he started to brag on Job. He said, have you seen my man Job? He's perfect in every way. He's exactly what I had in mind at the beginning of creation. There's just nobody like him on the earth. There was a little pushback from some of the other members of the cabinet. Somebody said, well, of course Job is good. Look at him. He's never had a problem in his life. He's got a perfect wife, low cholesterol, three children he never lost sleep over, 7,000 sheep. Of course he's happy and doing well. I bet if you took some of that away from him, things would be different. And so God did. And what happened isn't pretty. The animals were stolen. The servants were killed. 7,000 sheep struck dead by lightning. Have you ever seen 7,000 sheep struck dead by lightning? 
His children all died around the supper table when a gust of wind blew in and the house fell in and killed all of his children. But Job held firm. Incredibly, he prayed, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Like riverboat gamblers, the heavenly court up the ante, somebody said, hurt him. Make him pay. Make him feel it. I bet if you lay a hand on him, he'll crack. And soon itching sores erupted all over his body from the bottoms of his feet to the top of his head. Job's wife finally had had enough and told him to just curse God. But no, not Job. For 37 chapters in this book, we've seen things from Job's point of view. Undeserved suffering. Faith that is not rewarded. Friends who come with casseroles and not a thimbleful of empathy. And we know Job's view because we've been there and we share it. And the view is that God will play by the rules, that God is reasonable, God is a lot like us, if we can just get God over to the side and have a conversation, we can work things out. Last week in church I was sitting back there, Betty Alford read the scripture from Job, was managing the grandchildren, and I heard her read the verse from Job. He said confidently, God will heed me. An upright person can reason with him, and I I will be acquitted. And that's Job's view. And if we're honest with ourselves, that's our view. It just doesn't seem to be God's view. When Job finally does shake his fist and cry out to God, I've done everything you asked me to do. Why is this happening to me? Answer me right now. Well, God finally speaks. But fasten your seatbelt because God doesn't answer the question. But he takes us on this gorgeous and furious guided tour of creation. Who is this, God says, whose ignorant words smear my design with darkness? Stand up now like a man. I will question you. Where were you when I planned the earth? Tell me if you're so wise. Do you know who took its dimensions? What were its pillars built on? Who laid down its cornerstone while the morning stars burst out singing? Job, how are you with rain? Can you do rain? Can you make a zebra or a horse? Can you teach a hawk to fly or an eagle to hunt? Declare, if you know all this, surely you must know. It's interesting for four chapters 
all these questions, this tour through God's creation. And not once is Job's name ever mentioned. And all of a sudden, Job is impressed by how very little he really does know. In four chapters of questions to Job, not a single human being is mentioned. Snowflakes make the list. Goats make the list. Dewdrops and locusts make the list. But Job never heard his own name mentioned. And suddenly it dawns on him. He sees things from not his perspective, but from God's. The Franciscan writer Richard Rohr says that human beings' most basic problem is that God is God, and we are not. I know why that New York preacher called on the choir to sing after three minutes. We don't like not knowing. We don't like mystery. You come here Sunday after Sunday looking for answers. And I don't have any. This God's eye view of the world plays havoc with our notions of the way things ought to be. Sensible, predictable, we can reason things out. There are simply some things you cannot Google and get an answer to. I can say this, though. The speech of the Creator reminds God not only, reminds Job not only of God's power, but of God's commitment to life. And it's God's commitment to life that leads God to create. Job cannot know all the complexities of this world, but Job can know that it all belongs to God. Job cannot know why the suffering comes as it does, but Job can know that suffering does not rob him of his place in the magnificent creation of God. We talk about you know, we talk about the, the patience of Job. So-and-so has the patience of Job. But what impresses me is not Job's patience, but how fiercely he holds on to this God that he cannot comprehend and he cannot control. The question is, can you love what you cannot control? God says to Job, look away from yourself. Look around you. For a moment, see the world through my eyes. The beauty is in the wildness of it all, Job. You can't tame everything that frightens you without also losing the beauty of it all. Can you love what you cannot control? Uh, a long, long time ago, uh, my children were very small. I remember vaguely taking one of our girls to 
the emergency room. I, I forget what happened and how they got cut, but we had to take them there and needed stitches. They, they, they wrapped them in this blanket so they couldn't move and uh, put a sterile field over the place where they were going to put the stitches. A bleeding lip, I think. I grabbed her hands to hold and she looked at me through that little sterile sheet that was over her face and the instruments began to dart in and out, in and out, and she cried, Daddy, make them stop. It hurts. Please make them stop. And I said, ineffectively, be still. It'll be over soon. I just felt terrible. I said, hold on. I'm here. I'm here. But, Daddy, it hurts. Make them stop. And it, it, it was like an accusation or a, a plea, maybe a prayer. Well, they finished up quickly and they unwrapped her. And it was just then that something normal and, and absolutely incredible happened. She just jumped right into my arms. And I held her in amazement. Her petitions had gone unanswered. I had not stopped them. She had pleaded and I had just stood there lamely and said, hold on. But when it was over, she clung to me with unwavering trust. She didn't run away. She didn't accuse me of being a bad father. She just jumped into my arms. And it seems to me that this is almost impossible to do unless there is a goodness that is stronger than the circumstances we find ourselves in. And she believed that her father was there for her good. The witness of Jesus Christ is that we are God's children. The world is complex, it's painful, and it's indescribably beautiful and mysterious. Suffering comes. Answers may not. When Nicholas Walterstorff's son fell to his death while climbing a mountain at the age of about 25, he, he, he couldn't imagine what his life would be. He couldn't imagine that he could ever explain the why of such a tragic accident. And yet, he was able to write, I shall look at the world now through my tears, and perhaps I shall see things that dry-eyed I could not. May it be so with all of us. Let us pray. God of mystery and power, we have decided to follow Jesus to allow him to be the Lord of our lives, and we follow him even when we don't understand. So help us this morning. Make your face shine upon those who live with adversity, sickness, and despair. Let all who are weighed down by want come to know your bounty, that they may trust in your goodness. We remember and pray this day especially for road crews and civil engineers and all others 
to rebuild our state. We pray for those we love, our hopes and dreams for them, our anguish and anxiety on their behalf, our desire to make life easier for them. And we bless you for those we love but see no more. Lord, we live in a world filled with danger and fear. We are a long way from Eden. And how your heart must break at the hardness of our hearts. Restore your image in each of us. Grant the leaders of this world and state with wisdom and hope. God of the narrow way. You call us to shed all that burdens the lightness of life. Help us to surrender false wealth and embrace our need of you. Turn us from the pursuit of the trivial into the magnificence of your loving embrace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.